Russell T here, Russell the Davis. Russell the Davis, Russell the Davis, Russell the Russell the Davis. Russell the Davis, Russell the Davis, Russell the Russell the Russell the Davis. Years and years and years, yeah. It's Rusty's brand new show, is it Kido? Clear away those fears, yeah. It's Rusty Davis, count the minds down, bro. Years and years and years, yeah. Let's watch a brand new show, his chip not blow. Clear away those fears, yeah. Watch a new show cause Doctor Who sucks. Who cares about years and years? Episode 4, 2027. So we're four episodes in now, only two left to go. I'll ask in a second what we all thought of this latest episode, the fourth episode, but since I already know from the previous discussions what you guys in Giga and Dilb think of the series, I'll firstly ask you, David. What you've been thinking of the series so far? Uh, up until the new episode. I've enjoyed it. I think I've had uh, reservations. Uh, I think it's it's a very, as someone said in my Twitter feed the other day, it's a very unsubtle series. Which, I mean, Russell T Davis, I don't think. Uh, he's an amazing writer. Yeah. I don't think he's particularly known for his subtlety. Particularly unsubtle because it's it's beyond satire. It's, it's just blatant political commentary, which I really enjoy. But it's certainly, um, it's got the potential to really go pear-shaped if if the handling of certain issues isn't isn't done in a certain way because if it's not if everything is just text there's no subtext so when it goes wrong it could potentially go really wrong so i was a little bit reserved about certain plot lines and then kind of came to this episode and um felt even more reserved after the opening five minutes all right well before getting into those minutes and those reservations in giga and dilb how did you guys find the episode was it the best episode yet maybe I'm still not quite sure I'd put it above episode two, but it was certainly the most dramatic out of the four so far. Mm, yeah, I'd say definitely up there. I mean, they've all been just like sort of not impeccable, but great. I think it was definitely the tensest. I think it's hard to top this whole ending sequence with Daniel and Victor. I think even if that had been mishandled, if the episode had been really bad, under RTD's view of the world, it could have been so bad that it circled around to being good under horseshoe theory. <laughs> Is that baiting us to talk about that bit? Well, baiting me, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, let's talk about that. I think to start with, it's kind of funny, the idea that a sort of a far left movement would be able to agree with each other or to overthrow a bunch of, you know, presumably sock dems. Like, it's just... I feel like just in reality, there's just be so much hand-wringing about, like, guys, is it tactically advantageous? Should we do this? I don't know. Like, I don't know. It just, it just seems like a, a, some sort of massive far-left revolution seems more likely to happen under, like, a status quo of, I don't know, like, neoliberalism or something, rather than some nice milk-toast socialist Spain thing. But, you know, I, I could be talking all shit with that. Well, speaking of horse shit, the horseshoe thing is probably the more interesting aspect of this and it reminded me of the quote that rtd gave to viv in episode one which is how about how she missed the days when the left was the left and the right was the right implying that obviously you can't tell anymore because there's now some ambiguity and rtd said in a recent interview that occasionally he gave viv statements that he himself agreed with such as the one in episode two about porn being streamed to all the children and i wonder if that was another one because this whole thing about if you go too far to the left you'll meet in the middle certainly 
the way it's kind of given to Victor and positioned as like an explanation for what's happening politically does does give the sense that this is how RTD himself is thinking. And yeah, okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let someone else talk before I launch into a spiel about that. So go ahead. <laughs> what did you guys think? The strange inclusion of horseshoe theory in a Russell T Davis series kind of took me by surprise. I thought they were left wing. You go far right, you go far left. Eventually, you meet in the middle. Party that got so far left, it it went right. I'm really not convinced by the idea that uh, a far left party would start uh, deporting uh, immigrants. I I think that's ridiculous notion, and I was very surprised to see that come up. Uh, but once, because once we got past that, which didn't take too long. I mean, that was just the setup. That was just kind of giving them a reason why they had to get away from Spain. Um, and once we were past that, actually, I just love this story. I, I love this whole story. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I think the heart of what Davies is doing here always works well but a lot of the little specifics that he uses to get there rankle now and again like a few dodgy lines yeah but that Spain situation that really was interesting when it got past the um Victor's horseshoe theorizing for sure yeah I particularly loved before we had the montage you know we have every week of how society is getting more dystopic how the gunshots kind of bled into the kick drum starting the montage music Spain's calling it the January Revolution as the so-called People's Party, Nueva Esperanza, declares itself the new government. I thought that was a really nice touch. I love that, absolutely, yeah. But yeah, pulling back to what In Giga asked, I'm reading Viv as more of the author mouthpiece, RTD's character with similar views, where I saw Daniel as that earlier. And by that, I mean I'm finding her politics occasionally oddly inconsistent and confusing in the same way we occasionally find the shows just as we were saying i think this kind of confused politics really comes across in edith who is really set up as you know the leftist revolutionary figure but then her supporting of well, vivian feels odd how she kind of champions society going to shreds in that mm. I'm not entirely sure that some of the things that Edith comes out with are things that a political activist like Edith would come out with. She seems to support Vivian Rook because Vivian Rook's just gonna fuck the system and uh, she loves the idea of the system being fucked because uh, the system's broken so let's let's push it, let's let's go all the way and let's just completely break it. But I don't really buy that she'd, she'd, she'd do that by endorsing Vivian. And I think maybe it's meant to reflect uh, the supposed demographic um, of uh, Trump voters who uh, are meant yeah. to be like left wing and voted for Trump um, as an alternative to Hillary because of Hillary being so uh, 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 establishment. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. There are moments when I think Edith is fantastic and I think she, she's so wonderful as a character. And then sometimes she comes out with things that, that surprise me a little bit. All we have for certain on Edith is her tendency to use children for sneaky practices. Oh uh, yeah, she bribed them to leave the room, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what did you all think of that scene of Edith confronting Jean Joe? The well, well, RTD actually thought of this line many, many years earlier in his book *The Writer's Tale*. The man, he, he was the sort of man who's happy if he finds a giant crisp. Because <laughs> we all know someone like that. Yeah, this sort of a new member of the family that you know she's watching the terrible men out there. She's, she's got her eye on them. And that has me wondering if maybe this is going to go in a, a bit of a Pizzagate direction. Like, you know, if is she, like, 
Yeah, because yeah, you know the whole conspiracy about how you know Hillary Clinton is like eating children for their adrenochrome and stuff. I doubt it will be that bad. But RT, it seems to me like RTD might write something in where like. I mean, obviously, obviously, you know, you don't have to be like a crazy far-right cultist to believe that, okay, there are absolutely, you know, child you know, exploitation rings going on, right? They may not be under like, a pizza shop, and they probably aren't run by reptilians drinking, you know, magic juices, but nonetheless, right, that seems like something RTD might kind of use, and that would bring it closer to almost Children of Earth, almost, this idea of using children. So I'm interested to see where that goes. Edith's worldly enough that she's got a cynicism a lot of the other characters, and I suppose most viewers don't have, but I, I appreciate these moments where she's more in touch with the darker possibilities of what people are up to. Yeah, that's interesting. So she kind of sees um, sees the darkness and everything rather than the light in everyone. But, you know, she's not always wrong. Sometimes she's actually really onto things, and that's why she's so successful as a political campaigner, because she looks at a hugely successful business and she sees the exploitation that's going on underneath. Pulling back to how Gig, you mentioned Torchwood, Children of Earth, There was another thing from RTD's old book, The Writer's Tale, where he was kind of wistfully thinking of... You know, I'll just read it out loud. So, open quote from the book. We had bits of plot, but no story, no essence, no real reason for the show to exist. This is Torchwood, Children of Earth. So, I took a deep breath and, well, I gave away one of the best ideas I've ever had. The point being, it wasn't a Torchwood idea, it was a notion I've had in my head for about 20 years, and a series, this is the series that would eventually become years and years, and a series that I've always been dying to write, and something I'd talked about at length with some producers, talking about how he wanted to make it one day, and that they loved it. It was essentially a family drama, in which the world goes to hell, ending with our nice, safe, comfy Western society descending into anarchy or a military state. Those nightmare regimes that we see, you list some nightmare regimes, but right here on our doorstep with ordinary people like you and me and our mums and dads and our brothers and sisters, not just watching it, but part of it. Brilliant idea. And now I find myself using it up on Torchwood. (laughs) I love Torchwood, but this was a good six hours of drama, maybe 12 hours, maybe three years of drama that I've been planning for decades, condensed onto the ending of a sci-fi spin-off thriller. So the raging that I mentioned, that raging has been me. Countless times. Yeah, it was a bit, it's a bit, it was, I think it was a bit absurd for RTD to sort of hand ring over, oh no, I'm using this idea, I'll never be able to use it again. Like, I mean, it's not even, I mean, this and Children of Earth, obviously Years and Years hasn't finished yet, but they're so different fundamentally already. So clearly the idea is rich enough that you're able to get more than one thing out of it. But yeah, it is cute to see these things kind of carrying over from earlier on in RTD's career. In Children of Earth, the fear was like the government efficiency. Like they were so good at getting, you know, the children um, to give to the aliens and all that. Like the fear was the effectiveness of the government there. Where here it's like the ineffectiveness of the government is more what's scary. Yeah, I think this is a story that Russell T. Davis has, has just been telling really through his whole life. A long story about how humankind responds to catastrophe and... Um, about how, you know, when there's a catastrophe, we kind of make a, make a new one in response. And I think that's there through, um, maybe not so much his Doctor Who work, but I think it's there through both his Torchwood seasons and certainly there through years and years. And probably, he's, I, th- I feel like he's probably put it in other things as well. I th- always found this interesting tension with RTD in that I suspect he's uh, quite a cynical uh, man in some ways in terms of his 
his views on, you know, human nature and religion and a lot of things like that. But a lot of his work, he very pointedly tries to not be like that or send a different message. Like he has that quote about something he loves about fiction is it's the only place you can believably have a happy ending. I do think everyone dies in the end. I think I think it's part of the point of fiction is that's what I love about fiction is that happy endings, sad endings, they're entirely imposed. And I, that's why I especially like writing happy endings actually, because I think in the real world they don't exist. There's no love story that lasts because one of them dies first. And actually, and I think, I think when people strive towards realism in drama, and when they start defining drama as tragedy, saying if it has a sad ending, therefore it's good, and therefore that's drama, I sort of think, well, the real world does that. That takes care of it for you. If it's an artificial world that you're shaping, you can actually push it into a happy ending because life won't do it for you. And you know, his most successful work, Doctor Who, was full of um, unbridled heroism a lot of the times and faith in hu humanity, sometimes to, you know, silly degrees but he and was contrived happy endings for certain yeah. characters and then something like Torchwood especially Children of Earth and Miracle Day I feel like a more kind of his default mode if not necessarily his better mode but I feel like that's the kind of way he writes more naturally is this darker view of human nature and it's interesting in this show seeing him play with that because he still is you know is injecting the humor and he's got the kind of folksy folksy domesticity but I wonder the tone of the ending, what's that going to be? If it's going to be one of those happy endings he thinks are more believable in fiction or if he's just going to keep extending this dystopic stuff to, you know, a tragic endpoint. I think a lot of the time he, he purposefully escapes the line between despair and between hope. And you get a show like Cucumber where it's, um, I don't think apparently either one or the other. I, th I think um, I wouldn't describe Cucumber as really happy or sad. Do you think maybe maybe the default mode of writing for Russell is um, profound tragedy with, with just a moment of grace uh, right at the end? He, he always saves his moments of grace kind of for, for very close to the end or right at the end of the story. I think what's most likely in my opinion is that sort of a, a setting of basically sort of general dystopian tragedy but finding the light inside that having some, maybe something of a bittersweet conclusion. That's what I'm anticipating. Like this idea that people will still be able to come together and sort of find joy in life, even if everything falls apart. That seems where it's headed to me. Stability may only be found with like the family being under one roof. I think it's going to end yeah. on a note of, you know, Muriel being like the figure of stability because she's the one who's sort of anchored to the past more. And yeah. she's sort of refusing to like really put effort into engaging with things like Signor and this new technology and things. Yeah, I've, I've been saying this since like the first episode that I'm sure it's going to be, it's going to end in a kind of breakdown of the nuclear family and a return to that more multi-generational, closer bonds with the family. Like phones and that technology might still be around, but families will be much more concentrated into bigger units, I think is, I think he thinks that's better. It's just my sus suspicions from the show and that he's going to keep on that drum of, yeah, them living in the same house. I think the family will get more concentrated there um, eventually, not just uh, Celeste and her daughters, but yeah, we'll see. Maybe, maybe they'll be on a uh, mountaintop like Edith was predicting in the second episode. Speaking of um, Muriel, Celeste and her daughters and just family and people living in that house, what did you guys think of the whole Celeste reveals the affair scene, like that whole bit? Like, I thought that was that was a really good scene, right? I loved it. Celeste is yeah. far and away my favourite character. Every week I've been liking that character more and more. She's so... Uh, you empathize with her so much and the actress i really like how it's a more understated performance than some of the other ones it's a lot more 
facial acting, you know, really seeing her emotions in her eyes and stuff like that. The, the acting's just been incredible and it's just getting better and better. There's so much strength and pain there. I just really love the character and how she's handling the situation. She must have felt so trapped, like she was saying. And to force Stephen to kind of that honesty and humiliation in front of everyone. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was fantastic. And of course, Gran would ally with her and agree that Stephen had been, you know, cyclically doing what his father did. Those bad family patterns. It was all very well done, I thought. Good on Celeste and Gran. Yes, that was nice. That was really nice to see. I mean, that's the old trick, really, having two characters row and then unite over something, over a common enemy, and it's really heartwarming. And loads of shows have done it, and it never gets old. And it was particularly great with these two. And I think they're, I think um, there's always been a little bit of love there, but they just kind of, they don't wind each other up. I don't think they hate each other. I think they just wind each other up. And... And maybe what was lacking was just a respect for each other, and I think they've established that respect now, and then hopefully going forward, um, it's going to be a slightly easier relationship. And Stephen absolutely deserved that as well. What do you think of the way the siblings reacted? Well, I mean, Daniel sort of um, told Victor about it. He was having a bit of a laugh while Victor is in the shower. I think the siblings, like, they're all... They didn't seem very sort of sad for, like, the dissolution of his family, almost. They were just kind of like, ha-ha, sucks to be you, mate. <laughs> it's almost like this kind of... They, they're... They're not really invested in Stephen's goodness, so to speak. They're just sort of like, they're able to sort of laugh at his downfall a little bit, which I thought was very interesting. It's very sort of complex. It's a show that's certainly more complex than certain other shows. And so we're all very glad that it exists right now. I wonder what, like, sort of led to it being made now. Like, why did it have to be this year? I think we know. I think we know. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's explicitly said it was... Um, a certain thing in 2016, a Jack Robertson-inspired event that um, <laughs> made him sit up and say, oh, I've got to, got to write that series. Please don't use that name. <laughs> you, know, you mentioned the whole government efficiency thing. I think as in light of what's now happened in this episode with Viv becoming PM, I think we, we will start to see more of that children of Earth, brutal government, you know, uh, bureaucracy and just complete, you know, coordination. I think we'll start to see more of this dystopian government element from turn left coming back. I think that's that's such a running theme with RTD stuff. I think we will start seeing that from now on. I think it will become more like Children of Earth. I swear I'm bringing up the music now, but I swear this is actually to eventually circle back to turn left like you brought up Gig. But um, so first I'll ask, what did we think of the music in the episode? Like the, the ending credits music at the end there, when the BBC announcer wasn't vocalising all over the top of it, at least. More deadly drama, catch up with the cat and mouse chase everybody's talking about. The Killing Eve series one box set is available now on BBC iPlayer. Oh, well that was, yeah, don't get me started on that. That's been annoying me constantly with um, everything with Gentleman Jack, where I couldn't even hear the um, lyrics of the closing music because the BBC announcer talked over them. Um, so that was, that was very annoying. Um, that was interesting because that was the uh, cliffhanger music that just very, very subdued. Uh, my God, though, I loved the, well, I loved all the music um, this episode. I thought it was sublime. I, uh, I loved the music when they were uh, getting in the boat. I loved the music um, all the way through, but particularly um, with Daniel's death. The, the whole score yeah. from the scene on the beach to 
Victor arriving back at the house was just incredible. It was like uh, doomsday, really, for for Murray Gold. It, it was it was that kind of level. It it just tore me apart because I was. I mean, we'll get to that scene eventually, but that scene did so much to me, and uh, the music on top of it. It was probably for me the standout track of the series, and I'm already working on rearranging that because I think that just needs to be heard. Speaking of his Doctor Who music, the music really reminded me of. I don't know if you remember a dazzling end from Turn Left. Foot, same thing, yeah. It had a really similar tune to um, what was going on. There's guitars. They bounce Cronin energy back into the centre, which we control and decide the destination. It's a time machine. It's a time machine. Yeah, do you know, I haven't really thought that. Um, I'm going to have to re-listen to that now. Yeah. I thought the version of the end credits this week was really good, wasn't it? Just you know, stripping out all of the instruments and just making it quite uh, sort of serene almost in light of what had happened and also the total lack of a next time trailer helped as well and the music when victor was in the bus coming back to the uk i really liked that those kind of dis- distorted guitar notes that kind of post rocky sound i thought that was really nice very doomsday and the fact that you know it starts on the beach with the, p- with the piano and it just builds into the the uh this really phenomenal guitar part are you on your own there's no What's your name? There's no. Got any paperwork with you? There's no. It's going to be such a shame if we don't get a soundtrack. Do you know why so few of his soundtracks ever get released? I was told um, that it's just because he, he, he doesn't like putting soundtracks together. I've no idea of the veracity of that, um, but, you know, I would imagine that, like, Silver Screen would absolutely uh, love to, to produce loads of Murray Gold music because he's a really popular musician and he sells really well. But it's a shame that he doesn't at least just, you know, release the studio recordings, because, I mean, presumably yeah. there's there's an archive somewhere, there's a folder on someone's computer where all of that music exists in, in clean form, and it's kind of heartbreaking when you think about it. It's not um quite music, but I thought the intercutting of that montage of the Tory and Labour leaders with their deep fakes, the way it, I love the editing of the execute wolves for the both of them. I thought that was really fun. Yeah, that was very interesting. Ex- ex- execute them. Ask me what to do with the rich and I say, that is literally not me. Take their homes, burn them down. It's a fake. And throw those bastards to the wolves. The whole, the deep fake thing was, was, yeah, very topical. Again, I feel like it's one of those news stories that's come up over the last year. One of the biggest uh, areas for which deep fakes are causing a problem at the moment is pornography and supposed nude pics that have been leaked that actually aren't nude pics. They're someone else's with someone else's face interposed on them. Yeah, it's interesting how it's just such a total breakdown of truth or belief and trust in some kind of objective standard of truth. Like, 
The issue isn't even so much that people will or won't believe specific deepfake videos are real or anything like that. It's the sheer volume of disinformation and misinformation. The noise of it, it obscures that there even is objective truth and that some things did happen and some things did not happen. The confusion and endless noise of it all makes uh, charged narratives more appealing to people. You know, narratives are very linear and our brains are hardwired to like and understand narratives. Not that I'm implying the British media would have been somehow objective before deepfakes were invented or anything like that. Of course they were not. Or that myth of being apolitical and blindness to what the status quo is stuff and all that. But certainly things like deepfakes really add to the noise and confusion and predispose people to have less of a sense for truth and objectivity. I know in Giga's favourite show, Chernobyl dealt with <laughs> things really similar to all that just very recently. And the obvious, I, in, the, in the first, I was at the second episode where they had a Labour leader and you said he was obviously a riff on Corbyn. I wasn't so sure, like he had a beard, but I wasn't really feeling it. But this guy, absolutely. Uh, both what he was saying and the look of him, I totally thought that. But the Tory leader befuddled me. I, I didn't see any connection there. Did either of you see any? Was that riffing on anyone? The Tory leader? Uh, maybe not anyone in particular, but certainly the idea of like some young woman being kind of the sort of classy like Tory uh, front person like it, it might not necessarily happen but you know the idea is there we've seen this kind of trend of kind of uh, neoliberalism for her <laughs> like you know um sort of women-led uh, stuff i don't know like it's the sort of thing like the, the tory party is kind of tries to look progressive and stuff from time to time you know it's, it's certainly not like this uniformly white male thing I loved Viv's reaction to the deep fakes, where she's disavowing them, you know, of course they're fake, of course, but all the same, they really did say those things, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> all this stuff with Viv, though, um, and I'm very confident this is intended by RTD, and it'll be a big point of the next two episodes, the last two episodes, but mm. something obscured with Viv is how she hasn't, she hasn't really gone mask off yet. Like, she's set up as a proto-fascist figure or whatever, but we haven't specifically seen what the evils she will do are and so i'm i'm sure now she's prime minister we'll see all that in terms of specifics but i'm curious what rtd will exactly do with her because it sure could go a lot of ways yes i think she's kind of a, a very like deep philosophical evil um in that she i think there was an interview with rusty davis last night where he was talking about this where he was saying that she kind of channels all of our deepest, darkest des desires politically. Where she says the things that we're all thinking but don't want to say. Um, you know, not suggesting that we're all thinking the things that Vivian Rook thinks, but I think everyone at some point has thought for a moment about at least one of the things that Vivian Rook has said at some point. She's articulating every dark thought we've ever had, and most people have those dark thoughts and think, oh no, that's, I shouldn't have thought that, that was a terrible thing. And actually Vivian Rook's out there uh, vocalising those dark thoughts, like last week with the IQ test, you know. Who hasn't thought yeah. for a minute, oh, you know, most people who vote don't really know what they're doing, we could find you, we could start regulating it, we could, and then you think, you go down that track for like five minutes and you think no that's a terrible terrible idea but Vivian Rook doesn't she just vocalizes that ah uh, this is again related to editing I suppose but I also thought staccato is probably the wrong word but in the boat at night how we'd cut to silence and black and then cut back to these dim shots of the water in the boat I really liked how that was done 
Yeah, that was that was great, and the the suspense really of of you know you get the very quick like three cuts I think of of the journey, and then um, that long suspenseful shot of the beach, and you see the bodies in, in just a moment of of sheer oh my god what what's just happened is Victor dead is Daniel dead, um, and uh, yeah it was absolutely gut wrenching. Kind of reminded of me of Cucumber, yeah. Probably the most dramatic and significant episode of Cucumber. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Do, do you want to describe the um, the similarities, Gig? There is some editing very much like that. These hard cuts to black and very brief flashes of stuff. And I swear to God, it's the most haunting moment in RTD's entire career. It gave me fucking nightmares. So I was very happy to see that technique kind of brought back. And it was also brought back at quite um, a fitting time as well, because we're dealing with sort of death and sort of horror and I have to say like it kind of it's going from that to the reveal that actually you know Danny is just drowned like that completely that caught me off guard still like I was completely like whoa oh shit I didn't expect that hmm. so yeah what, what do you guys think well, Russell had an interview with the Radio Times this week uh, where he, in- he went into that decision to kill off Daniel instead of Victor a lot and initially it was scripted for Victor to die and so he'd been proceeding with that but it felt kind of off to him because it kind of decentralized the refugee element and the Lions family element away by making the Victor stuff almost like a side story to it but when you flip it around and Daniel dies it integrates Victor in better and it really I mean RTD says his whole vision for the show was like humanizing and really bringing up to the forefront of your face these kind of crises that happen in history you know, right to a British family's doorstep. And so when it's a Ukrainian guy, much as we love him, that dies, it's still kind of disconnected. But when it's Daniel, it melds in much better. And he said he, he still went back and forth a lot on the two scripts he had, but I think all his reasons he said for um, killing Daniel off instead really work structurally for the series. I thought it was uh, definitely the right decision to make. Um, I'm very glad they didn't. The, okay, the cynical take is... Um, it takes killing off uh, a, a white British character to make the audience care about the plight of refugees. If they'd killed Victor, it would have kind of been... It would have still kept the refugee crisis at a distance from the viewers. Because it's like, uh, you know, Daniel's gone through this period of his life where he falls in love with a refugee, he tries to help the refugee, the refugee dies, and then eventually he goes back to his life. With it being Daniel who dies, it changes the family dynamic so much because you've got Victor as this loose end, but absolutely a member of the Daniels, of uh, the uh, Daniels family, the, the Lions family now, um, who I, I assume that they're, they're going to care for and hopefully they're going to help. It, it gives you a chance to focus on Victor's grief. It, it makes it Victor's story, where we expected it to be Daniel's story, and I think that's uh, I think that's absolutely marvellous. I think it was the right choice. I think it leaves Victor in such an interesting place now because he's sort of made this new home but without Danny and I'm just interested to see how the rest of the family sort of deal with it and include him. Well, I had a, um, this must have been a wrong take because everyone I've talked to said this was a silly thought of mine but when all the lions come bang on his door at the end I thought they were like out to get him like really angry I was really scared for Victor because they're like <laughs> smashing his door and yelling his name and I'm thinking oh, oh shit are they blaming him really hard what, what are they going to do to him but I mean Rosie said please at the door I guess <laughs> like it didn't sound it didn't sound bloodthirsty to me yeah well I'll be very relieved when they haven't you know brought out baseball bats in the start of the next episode yeah it would be, just, it would be really nice just to see the solidarity I think 
Yeah. I think this decision to kill Danny and leave Victor alive, I think it makes so much more sense to me because with Danny now you have almost this tragic arc that seems to just like make just so much sense for the show. You have the dramatic irony of him sort of fulfilling his mission to bring Victor home, but you know, dying in the process. You have almost the payoff for maybe not necessarily hubris per se, but almost just the the sheer kind of chucks per of his whole venture and his insistence that, you know, oh, I can do this, I can do this, you know, we're clever, we, you know, we're not stupid, we can make this happen. And we get just sort of this, it just, and it just makes so much more sense. And it is so much more interesting, like you said, Dilbert, like this is, this is absolutely the right choice for the show. And I think what you get is that incredibly, this, this ending, which I think is incredibly powerful, of the family, rather than just sitting around and like kind of mourning Danny, immediately all of them, including Celeste and Muriel, you know, they're off, they're off, they're off, they're on their feet, they're in the car, over to, you know, to go help Victor and find Victor. Because Victor is nonetheless, you know, as much of a member of, a member of the family as Danny was. Right, they've absolutely they've taken him in and they would absolutely they will drop everything to do you know what's most important at that moment which is look after one of their own and that is very davies to me this idea of just total like familial uh, bonds and devotion and just seeing that expressed in sometimes slightly unexpected ways what the the other thing about the decision that i think is really davies is that the scripts were late enough that russell Tovey had already been contracted for six episodes when RTD changed his mind about killing Daniel off, so he had to give them the call that <laughs> you're actually only going to have to appear in four. What if he's a ghost in episodes five and six? Oh, we get flashbacks some, or something. Some of that um, Grace Graham influence from Doctor Who. Could yeah. Hauntological. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the show is... The show is already more hauntological than series 11, even without any ghosts. So, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's be real. <laughs> this is another thing... Um, just interesting from that RTD Radio Times interview where RTD was kind of... Well, he wasn't resisting because there hadn't been reaction to it yet, but he was talking about if people would take Daniel's death as like a bury your gaze thing. He thinks he'll get some anger over the episode because of that trope uh, and that it's a gay character dying or being seen as disposable, but that he thinks what works about it is that the gay characters are firmly in the centre role you know, they're the lead. It's that's their story. Well, this uh, no, I won't. I won't connect this to Thrones. Don't worry. But he says, I don't think. I don't, I don't think of Danny's death as gay. It's the central plot of the whole show. It's the hero's journey. His little. Did you just say that? Of, this is what RTD's you, saying. Did he actually say it's the central plot of the whole show? Yeah. Because okay, I'm gonna slightly vindicated here. This is what I've been saying. Yep. Okay. It's the central plot of the whole show. It's the hero's journey. And his little glimpses of vanity in that episode are the hero's crucial flaw. I ah, think the anger is. about dead gay characters comes from the fact that once dead, the rest of the drama then straightens around them. But that doesn't happen here. Victor is still very much alive. And then he goes on to spoil some stuff that I won't repeat. But yeah, so I thought I thought that was interesting uh, stuff for him to say about how it's not really the trope in his eyes because it's not dismissive or disposing of them. It's very centering. It's like, you know, an actor, if they get Macbeth, they're not going to be pissed off because they die at the end. It strikes me that um, none of the siblings at this point have stable romantic lives, do they? <laughs> like, between, you know, Rosie kind of cycling through men, Edith doing whatever the hell she's doing, Stephen's marriage just dissolving this week, and obviously everything that happened with um, Danny. It's like you just, yeah, I mean, uh, Muriel said that quote to Stephen that you are your father's son. 
And I wouldn't say that you know applies to all of them, but you, there's just this uniform sense of chaos like affecting all of the siblings. And maybe that stems from kind of how things went down with their parents. And it's interesting to me to see how there's there's no there's no beacon of stability anywhere in this family, really, is there? It was interesting seeing how the grand going back to Stephen kind of condemned him for like cyclically going back to what his father did. I like how a lot of the stuff in the family is just more alluded to. Like we never see the mother or the father they talk about but you really feel those kind of pains of the family from the past. Yeah, I love the absent generation, really. Um, I think it's a very, very interesting decision to have Muriel as the figurehead of the family, not as the mother, but actually as the grandmother, and then to just have this second absent generation and then to focus on the grandchildren. Um, because, as, I mean, it makes Muriel an absolutely incredibly drawn character. Um, but there's, yeah, just so much unsaid and, um, God, you just feel the love they have for their mother and you feel the love that Muriel had for her daughter. And we don't know anything about this woman, but you just feel the love that's there. Just circling back around to Stephen again, I'm wondering now, uh, are we even sure he cheated at all? Because, <laughs> I mean, with this deep fake technology, I, I don't really know who to trust anymore. Anyway, speaking of who not to trust, what did you think of Viv specifically in terms of how her election was shown in the episode? The big event we were expecting well, some of us were expecting, has finally happened, but it was sort of sidelined completely in such a yeah, great way. That was brilliant. Just like becoming background noise while Victor's mourning and processing. And I just thought it really drives home how it's a family saga and not, you know, overly centered on the political events. Yeah. At the same time, I feel there is an important parallel of putting Viv's Viv's election, this you know undoubtedly horrific event, in contrast with that moment of a massive tragedy happening. It's kind of like everything's yeah. going wrong at once. It's yeah. like the punctuation at at the end of you know an arc or a development. She's mm. like the little exclamation mark of how bad things are getting in an episode. I was so sure she'd be elected like in the first five minutes because I thought the next time trailer from last week surely wouldn't be spoiling something towards the end of the next episode. But I was happy even though it did show up pretty much at the end because it was such a nice little grace note there for our Victor's state of mind there. And it does make the trailer something of a good misdirection as well, doesn't yeah. it? Because, oh, 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 the big event is going to become PM. Just kidding, we hid the real spoiler from you completely. Well, they, they've hid the next time trailer completely this week, and I don't want to find it. Yeah, yeah. Dave could smash the system. Tell you what's weird, though. Do you remember years ago, we used to think the news was boring. Oh, my God, golden days. The news would come on and we just yawn. Now we hide. I have to hide my eyes, literally. Didn't we already have that conversation in an earlier episode? I I swear yeah. there was something very yeah. similar. <laughs> Keeps happening. Well, I thought it, thought it was a really interesting point. I mean, I'm sort of too young to like remember the news from 15 years ago, but it's like people seem a lot more incensed about politics nowadays. He said it was like before 2008 that people would just turn on the news and just not give a shit really. But at the same time, it's like highlighting this paradox that he says they were born in the pores, but they weren't really, you know, yeah. things, bad things have been happening all the time. And I just think it's really interesting that RTD actually tried to sort of vocalise that those contradictory feelings. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of veracity to it in that things, if only for technological progress alone, things 
do seem kind of accelerated in years and years as reality ends, ours too, to an extent. But you're absolutely right that just by nature of how generations work, you're born 30 years after a war happens, you don't think about that war. But the people alive at the time do. It's a, I think it's the same reason you get those, you know, I was born in the wrong generation people. Because they think 30 years ago music was amazing, films were amazing and everything was the best of its kind because all they're remembering is the good stuff from then. Because no one remembers the total mindset of an era and the headspace of an era unless they're actually living in it. And as the further you get away from it, the more it's pilfered down to, you know, specific things or it's just forgotten completely. So I think if they were the age they are now in the 80s, they would not be saying what they're saying now, for sure. Even though I do think obviously things have actually accelerated at the time they're in. I think with that thing that Stephen said about now I have to hide my eyes from the news. Thing is, people say that today as well. And we're talking and this is set in 2027. So I think it's interesting that it's almost the, the same thing is sort of still going on, like essentially almost a decade later now. And it's it's a bit like I was re- I looked around some reviews of the show like a few weeks back and one of them complained that, oh, the show just feels like 2019 on steroids. It doesn't feel like a prediction of the future. But <laughs> at, at the same time, it's kind of like, well, yeah, I suppose. But in a way, the future might essentially be that, mightn't it? If we just we're just kind of locked in these cycles of just the same, just doing the same things almost and just like, like boiling the frog, like things don't seem to change, even though they, you know, they are behind the scenes. I guess that's it's kind of a Doctor Who-y thing, but where there it's born of, you know, they can't afford sets that look that different or they can't be bothered thinking up societies that are that different. Here it's more just like, yeah, things inherently always seem pretty similar. Although there was some stuff... we Brexit going on. Yeah, the, the types of burgers John Joe was listing sounded really different. Acorn, uh, Membrane and Paper Burgers. Yeah, uh, Ersatz burgers, non-burgers, no burgers, not burgers, burger substitutes and paper burgers. (laughs) How many types of burgers are there? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, I don't think Russell G. Davis is even um, hoping to be right about the types of food being envisioned. I think think it's just a really fun throwaway line. You get a lot of those and and it's great. It's just absolutely hilarious. And it's the sort of thing you can actually really imagine being from his Doctor Who stories. Uh, Do they have Kronk burgers? That's the question on everyone's (laughs) lips. And that's what I like about Years and Years. It's got the the grit of like Torchwood, but it's also got the uh, eccentricity and the the weirdness and the whimsicality of of Doctor Who. There was some other cool, well, I say cool. There was some other interesting futuristic technology, like the breath scans, um, the 3D printed villages on clifftops, life expectancy from blood tests. Would, would you take the uh, blood test for the life expectancy? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would and then I would regret it. Yes, <laughs> me too. Yeah, yeah. The United Nations has threatened to remove its headquarters from American soil. After the suspension of same-sex marriage, the Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade. What do you think of that? Just like, where is the empathy? That's quite timely in light of um, was it was it Alabama? Was it yeah? It's it's all, it's all just seems like like it's stuff that we know is going to happen in the present. Just sort of is now finally happening in the well, show. RTD had a really good quote about this, like saying how people make so much of like social change and all that, but he's saying he still feels he's always felt like gay rights, are, you know, on tender hooks, and you know certain societal shifts could push them away very quickly. He said. He thinks gains have been made, but he's always felt this kind of fragility to things. And so I guess he's kind of skeptical of the idea of maybe not of progress, but of like inherent sustainability 
like that things will stick and not still have to be fought for or maintained or anything like that. That does seem to be the premise of the show almost, because it's about, you know, Britain being supposedly this island of stability, but actually we're going to see it, we're going to see it go into chaos, basically, especially now Viv's PM. That seems to be almost a running theme of RTD's work, isn't it? You know, turn left and all that. This is going back to Stephen, but what did you think of the daughter's reactions? So Ruby, the younger one, although I, like a lot of people, thought she was the older one in the early episodes, but she's the younger one. She seemed annoyed with him, but not not as outraged as the other yeah, two. Yeah, she, she hugged him, she didn't hugged, she? Yeah. Mm. Then Bethany, like, internally stewing over it, how she asked him what colour was the woman that he'd been having the affair with, and then just walking off after he answered. I thought that was um, interesting, and I'm glad RTD didn't make that too melodramatic. Like, he raised the point, and then he just had the characters deal with that mostly silently, which was probably the way to go. What, what did you guys think? That thing from Bethany kind of surprised me. Like, I hadn't thought of her as that, uh, I don't know, not fixated, but that kind of conscious of race, really. And to sort of, and this element of, like, suggesting that, that mere race may have played a part in the affair, that seemed to, like, that 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 kind of, that, I didn't, I didn't feel there was, I hadn't detected any sort of uh, pre-established uh, sort of grounds for that to come up, especially, particularly with, you know, her character. So that was that was very interesting. Like, I wonder if that's going anywhere in particular. It was just kind of, kind of yeah, kind of a weird note there. I was kind of it was interesting though. I think her suspic- her specific suspicion, whew, her specific suspicion might be unfounded there, but it had me rethinking. And I'm a bit apprehensive about this when I think about the implications of it. But I wonder if Bethany's transhuman stuff. No, I, I don't want to go down this line of thought. Do, do you know where I'm going with are you this? There might, are you suggesting there might be a link with um, transhuman, sort of her desire to be transhuman and her desire to sort of escape the uh, the, the, the structures of racism? We'd say, oh, like being sort of seen differently for, you know, the colour of her skin, for example. Yeah, and sexuality as well, perhaps, because she seemed, she seemed very pleased when her sister called her a sodomite, um, when she was impersonating their grand, the other grand uh, in this episode. And um, But yeah, it has me rethinking if and I don't love this because of, you know, equivalencies we've drawn before with, um, well, the, for the first episode, Drew, with transhumanism and being transgender. But I wonder now if there aren't some more grounded discomforts with her identity that kind of played into that transhumanism, which she seems much less into now, you know, understandably after her friend's eye mishap. And also, RTD said they couldn't afford doing the uh, digital effects for the Snapchat filters after the first episode. He'd written them in more, but he couldn't afford it, so we had to cut that out. So, who that knows how intended this is, but yeah. I'm thinking it's a more complex interlinking of discomfort about her identity now. I don't know if this is a good direction, but yeah, that's what that's what I'm suspecting now. I wonder if he's... I guess he's positioning transhumanism as, like, an affront to these kind of family values. So, part of her arc is to move away from it and more towards the family. It's weird, because I think, like... Burying your face in your phone at a family gathering is obviously an affront to family values, but Bethany's, like, she uses her hand as a phone, fine, but she doesn't seem, you know, a quarter as buried in technology anymore as she did in the first episode, even though she's had more transhuman, like, adjustments made to her. So I wonder if it is, um, it's a more general point about technology. Like, we know Rosie's oldest son usually has that VR thing on his head, and he's not you know, getting anything implanted in them, but that's probably more an affront to family time and family values than getting all those chips inserted in your hand. Yeah, because things like Signor 
and the hand chips are really more, they only serve to make you more connected, I suppose. Are we going to talk about Lincoln? I mean, as Mirrors would say, you know, this is a great conversation for a group of uh, cis-ish guys to be having. <laughs> this is a running theme in the podcast now. But um... Well, hey, these discussions, these re- review discussions, they're always open to any trans listeners if they have any interest in appearing on on one of these discussions. I'm just a message away on Twitter. But yeah, I know what you mean. And we have spoken before to things RTD is doing here with issues and how we draws an equivalence between transhumanism and being transgender or as his characters call it being transsexual an awkward line incoherent even in how bethany's parents speak it in a moment played as clueless adults unsure of what's apparently wishy-washy ever-changing terminology but then it's also sincerely used by bethany the young daughter very much positioned as the forward thinker So it's just completely out of sync with the actual usage of the word in real life. And it doesn't make any sense as an intentional scripted like linguistic regression or anything like that because of the the doddery, befuddled way Bethany's parents talk about changing terms. And then apart from that line, all all the issues in drawing that equivalence at all, since Bethany is literally talking about going to a dodgy facility, well she was talking about in episode two at least, going to a dodgy facility in Switzerland or wherever to literally medically destroy her body, which is just so inappropriate when RTD has explicitly in the text been drawing connections between, you know, this sci-fi futuristic speculative genre fiction take on transhumanism and the very real and very present and valid existence of trans people. But like how I started... Uh, this topic right now what we're talking about is who we're talking about is lincoln rosie's child who was flagged as having a gender neutral name as early as the opening minutes of the first episode and who's very much taken to the ribbons edith put in their hair for one of her capers last episode and who is now wearing more girlish clothing consistently to the extent some of the family members are noticing Although it's notable how relatively non-narrativized it's all been in that they haven't really kicked up a fuss or anything. It's, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm waiting for that to pay off, really. Like, it didn't, I wouldn't say that uh, subplot kind of took great steps forwards in this episode. It's just kind of, okay, you know, we're wearing a dress, still got the ribbons. So I say it wasn't kind of, it's, it's just a question of which episode five or six will, six will, um, will, if, if indeed Lincoln, you know, comes out as trans, so when will that happen? Or will it be something that RTD just kind of saves for the final scene or something? I think it's a, quite bold, in a way, to, to do that storyline with a child, because, I mean, you know, we're still at the stage where we don't see that many transgender characters in television. Um, when we do, they tend to be adults. I thought from the first episode, each episode would be skipping like five years. And so Lincoln would be seeing, you know, like as an adult towards the end of the series. And so we'd obviously see more developments with them asserting their, uh, who they are to their family. But I get I get the impression from each episode now just doing one year a week. I know you've said before in Giga that it'll probably ramp up towards the end, but I don't see it ramping up to Lincoln being 16 or whatever. It's meant to be 2034. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. What year are they in now? 2027. Well, if I can very elegantly (laughs) segue from the specificity of that date and at the same time shift back to being more positive about RTD in the show, something I do really appreciate, appreciate about it is the general specificity of it. 
as like we know the exact reason Victor can't return to his state and the exact reason it's oppressive to him. And in general, there aren't really vague attitudes, especially positive ones about hope or unity or anything like that here. It's all more specific, specific reasoning, specific connected global ways that connect to how problems are in societies, which is such a more, it's more of a court action maybe, or at least it's more galvanizing of an audience since the material relevancy to viewers' lives is you know, so plain. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely agreed with all that. And um, I think, although you know, it has had its problematic moments. I think the inclusion of Europe and um, showing uh, all the problems that are ahead for Europe is also very important. You know, the, we see we see in years and years exactly what's happening now, which is um, the the frontier just becoming increasingly militarized. Now, um, I haven't got the figures in front of me, but. I remember reading that it was some somewhere in the region of two billion euros that the EU spends on surveillance systems and borders and patrols to keep unwanted migrants out of Europe. Um, but it only spends a fraction of that on actually uh, looking out for the perception conditions for when the refugees arrive, for rehousing the refugees, for looking after the refugees. So basically the whole of Europe and the EU is, is doing everything it can to keep migrants out. So I'm very glad that they, the scale of the story was taking place all across Europe and it was about this, this perilous, treacherous journey to get to England. And they weren't getting help anywhere. There wasn't a, a kind, friendly European state on the way that helped them out. It was just, it was just living hell. And I think that completely, um, that is very, very accurate to what, to what it is like to be a refugee. Yeah, I do. I do like a lot how the series, like in, in the first episode, we have Viv in her introduction, you know, basically saying she doesn't care at all about Israel and Palestine and she's just focused entirely on Britain and British is issues and she's really doing that call to domesticity kind of thing. But then the rest of the series has so much been looking at the rest of Europe and America and how everything's so interconnected and how global, you know, all these issues are things like the refugee crisis and that. I really I really like how that's done. I think that, the, as you say, uh, what Vivian says in the first episode about not caring about uh, Palestine, about Israel and Palestine, it shows that she doesn't grasp the fact that we're not an isolated nation and uh, a lot of the conflicts across the world, either, you know, they're conflicts that we've taken part in or they're conflicts that we've funded. And the fact that she sees them as, as not being our problem kind of points to the fact that she doesn't really know that much about European history. And I think maybe that's one of the very important statements that the series is making, which is that all the awful stuff that we see happening in the world isn't just stuff that we should be responding to. It's actually stuff that is, to some degree, our fault. You know, Daniel doesn't die because of the actions of the people who put him on a boat. He doesn't die because of the revolution in Spain. He actually dies because Victor was deported from the United Kingdom and he went out to find Victor. The instigating event happens in the UK. And I think one of the messages that we're seeing is that the UK is at, and Europe are actually responsible for a lot, of these, a lot of these problems that we see happening all the way out in the Eastern world and um, as with, with Israel and Palestine. And yeah, that's really, really interesting. In Giga, way back at the start of this discussion, you said you would hold off some of your thoughts on horseshoe theory until later. Well, can you speak to those extended thoughts now? 
the I would say what I what I see as the problem with it is that it looks at far left movements that develop reactionary tendencies like you know nationalism, homophobia, racism, or just you know even just preserving capitalism, and instead of concluding that movements develop contradictions and problems, including ones that can be you know, deliberately cultivated and exploited by you know the right, it concludes that the political spectrum is you know obviously you know, a horseshoe, and that the problem you know because both sides are the same, the problem is doing anything other than staying safely in the centre. And of course the problem with that, which is the problem underpinning the whole show, really, uh, sort of, and the whole political territory that the show is trying to explore, is that the centre is just as susceptible to those reactionary tendencies as, you know, anywhere else on the spectrum. And, you know, the centre, you know, capitulates to the right, you know, so frequently and in so many ways. And in very much the whole the whole territory that RTD is now exploring with the populism taking over and Viv, you know, that the the ground for that is laid by this centrism and this sense of a of a stagnant status quo that you know the RCD is kind of attacking in the first place for allowing this whole thing to happen so it's kind of there's just, there's a ton of um contradictions kind of underpinning the, the the ideology of the show and when it comes to just doing this sort of lazy horseshoe theory thing of you go far left you go far right it's the same thing it's just it's just the same old you know comparing anti-fascists to nazis horseshit and it's a it's a little bit embarrassing like you know i don't want to be sort of super harsh about it but like it is annoying it's sort of it's, it's uh, yeah it's not exactly politically astute it's the sort of thing that only makes sense from this the specific position of being in the center which is defined by well, ignorance really, and of not knowing what's going on with us elsewhere on the political spectrum. Okay, I'm done now. <laughs> 60 seconds soapbox over. <laughs>